This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Bunker Roundtable. I'm Ross Taylor. Coming up on today's show, we discuss what we've learned from the Tory leadership debates, talk extreme heat, Britain is so warm today it's forced us back on Zoom after melting a panellist's laptop, and ask Jamie Suskind how he'd regulate the internet. Plus, do photos have the same power to move they once did? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. It's been a hectic few weeks, so we just want to say a big thank you to all of you for tuning in and to apologise for any sound quality issues that you might be hearing. We're having to record remotely because it's just too hot to go into the studio. If you've enjoyed the podcast in recent weeks, then please do consider supporting us on Patreon. For as little as £2 a month, you can get the podcasts early and ad-free, as well as merchandise like mugs and T-shirts. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Right, let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Serhan. Yasmin, you have a new job, don't you? I do, yeah. Um, after six really wonderful years at the Atlantic, um, I'm heading to Time Magazine's London Bureau, where I'll be on the international team covering foreign affairs um, with an emphasis on the future of democracies and rising authoritarianism around the globe. So really lighthearted, fun stuff. Um, not dissimilar, I think, from from the sort of things I write about now. But yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. That's a fascinating brief, though. I mean, it uh, couldn't be a more interesting time to be doing that. Also with us is journalist and Chancellor of the University of Kent, Gavin Esler. Hi, Gavin. Yes, hello. Hi, Roz. You've been leading the University of Kent's graduation ceremonies, haven't you? Uh, yes, I've, I've shaken, I think, 2,500 hands in the last week, including PhD students and uh, recently graduate, graduated undergraduates or former undergraduates. It's been good fun. And you watched the comedian Mark Thomas lay into Boris Johnson at a ceremony in Canterbury Cathedral a couple of days ago. Uh, were you expecting that? Uh, no, I, I wasn't expecting anything, really. The, um, we've had a number of honorary graduates, in, including uh, Tua Savage, who is an Afrobeat star with about five million followers, Mark Thomas, who's a great comedian and so on. And I think all that the team who are involved do is say, please say something uplifting to students who have graduated. And <laughs> Mark did a bit of that. And then he went into um, what is a bit of his act, which uh, which it seemed to go down pretty well with uh, most people in the cathedral, not everybody, as you might expect. He's he's for, for anybody who doesn't know him, he's broad. He broadly doesn't think much of Boris Johnson. And I think that was one of the things he was he was determined to say. There was certainly a lot of applause. Uh, there was. There was. <laughs> I've never been. I've never been in a cathedral with a comedian before doing a performance. So that was from a lectern. So that was quite something. <laughs> Our guest today is Jamie Suskind, barrister and author of the new book, The Digital Republic. Welcome to the bunker, Jamie. Thank you for having me. You wrote about the Uber files recently. What's been the biggest problem with the way Uber works for you? 
Uber had this issue where, and again, these are allegations just now, but Uber's issue was that its strategy seemed to be to be to go into countries, uh, not obey the law, and then try and change the law, which they were already breaking, as opposed to the more conventional route of trying to get the law changed and then entering a market. If I had to summarize it, I'd say that was the nature of the allegations that The Guardian is making against Uber. But in general, kind of zooming out, it's a, it's a bit of an example of one of these hyper-macho 2010s Silicon Valley companies. Uh, and the internal culture sounds like it was all over the place. We'll be hearing more from Jamie later on. The Tory leadership candidates went head-to-head at two debates over the weekend. By the time this podcast reaches you, another will have been cut from the race. It's probably Tom Tugendhat, but don't take that for granted, we may be wrong. And those two were probably the last debates we'll get. Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have pulled out, so Sky has cancelled the debate planned for later this week. What have we learned about our next PM? Is Penny Mordaunt still on a roll? Is Sunak a shoo-in or have Boris Johnson's efforts to sabotage him done the intended damage? Gavin, I usually love these kind of debates. They're just catnip for me, but consequential as they are, I've been finding it hard to sit through them. Are any of these people ready to be PM? Well, I I agree with you, really. I I haven't watched any part of any of them Uh, and because because we don't matter. You know, from 2016, 2019, 2022, three times now, a Conservative leader has been elected by about 160,000, mostly white, mostly elderly, mostly living in the southeast of England people in the ABC One social group, at least 80 percent of them are. we don't count. You know, eventually they have, according to tradition, uh, in our unwritten constitution and the various norms of behaviour, we will presumably at some point have an election, although it doesn't actually have to happen until 2014, or that's when they have to call it the end of 2014. So I don't matter. You don't matter. I'm not one of the electorate. I'm not one of the 160,000. And I'm not one of those who's who's produced, frankly, three failing leaders in the past and quite possibly will produce a fourth. So, of course, I'm interested and of course I'm affected. But this group of geographically, socially and ethnically people who are not like the 68 million of us decide our future. And we then have a chance, perhaps at some point, when they so choose, now they've got rid of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, when that leader chooses, we will have an election. And I just think it shows what a ludicrous system we have. And final thought, you know, Boris Johnson will have dissolution honours. This man can make people members for life of the House of Lords. And this man is someone who's been booted out by his own party for being, shall we put it politely, ethically challenged. Now, how weird a system do we have and how ridiculous is it? So uh, it's been hot and sunny and I've been doing other things, I'm afraid. Well, like Boris Johnson himself, who I think spent the weekend having a big party at Chequers and riding around in a fighter jet, pretending to be Tom Cruise, not chairing Cobra meetings about the heatwave. So he obviously thinks he's uh, off the hook for that. Everyone else has promised tax cuts, but Rishi Sunak says we can't afford them yet. We know that's not a message that Conservative Party members like to hear. But do you think the public is more receptive to it? Do you think there's a part that says, well, you know, actually things are very bad at the moment and perhaps we can't afford to cut taxes? 
I think the public is receptive to anyone who appears to be a grown-up in a position of power at the moment, because we know how difficult things are. We, <laughs> they don't seem to be bothered about climate change either, actually, which is interesting. Um, we know how, how difficult things are. I think Rishi Sunak has got uh, various problems, but he will probably be, be the anointed one. Um, and one of his problems is it's quite easy to be Chancellor when you are giving away money, and it's very difficult right now because he probably has to close some of it back. And that won't go down well with his own members. But I think the public is actually in some ways more grown up and certainly by definition more representative of most British people than the people who are choosing the leader. So if he gets through that, I think people will just have a sense of relief that thank goodness Boris Johnson has gone off to play with his wallpaper or whatever it is he's doing. You mentioned net zero. Yasmin, a YouGov poll of Tory members last weekend put the climate emergency at the bottom of their top 10 concerns, even with the overheated situation we currently find ourselves in. All the candidates have now committed to net zero, just not necessarily yet. How are they able to be so sanguine about this? Well, I think it's it's precisely because of, of what you just said about that polling. Only 4% of the Conservative Party members surveyed said that hitting the target of net zero emissions by 2050 was one of their three pri- priorities for the next Tory leader. So um, t- to Gavin's point, you know, these are the people that matter the most. So <laughs> you're ultimately going to be catering um, your offer to the public, depending on on what, what it is Conservative uh, members want. Um, that said, it's, it really is hard to see how long that remains the case, particularly given the infernal weather that we're dealing with right now. I mean, for God's sakes, the UK had to (laughs) halt flights in and out of its largest air base because it was so hot that the runway melted. So I I think it is an untenable position. Um, You know, it's not a hot spell. It's a heat wave. Um, And and these things, you know, the experts tell us are only going to get more intense, more frequent as time goes on. Um, And I would imagine that this is something that will hopefully come up in the contest more. I think if there were another leadership debate, this is an issue that would be impossible to ignore because, you know, per- perhaps at the time that poll was taken, maybe the people commenting, you know, this wasn't an issue that they were facing kind of head on that day. But these next couple of days are going to show us that actually human-induced climate change is something that is going to be affecting people right now in very real ways. Um, and even if it's not in very serious ways like deaths or illness, um, things like getting around, you know, the tube has been having loads of delays today. This is not a, a city, let alone a country, that, that is built to handle this type of extreme heat. But this extreme heat is our future. Yeah, I mean, we would like to be in the studio today, but frankly, we can't because the public transport system is just unbearable. I've literally been wiping my face with a cold flannel as you were talking. If Tugendhat leaves the race tonight, there will be no white men in the last four candidates. Should we celebrate that? I mean, it, It is really striking just now how ethnically diverse this contest has been, particularly for a country that appears to prize white male Etonians in positions of leadership. Um, You know, of those originally in contention, I think half were of ethnic minority backgrounds and half were women. Um, I spoke to Sundar Katwala at British Future about this, and he told me that this contest represents probably the most ethnically diverse contest for party leadership that has been seen in any major party in any democracy. And for, for a certain for a party of the right in particular, this is off the scale. I think it also is is pretty significant because we tend, and, and by we I mean you know I, I think people generally, but certainly in left progressive circles, 
think of diversity and multiculturalism as a shibboleth of the left. Um, But in Britain's case, we're seeing that these political firsts are actually more commonly emerging among the right. You know, it was the conservatives who had the first ethnic minority prime minister and Benjamin Disraeli. They've had the first two female prime ministers. Um, So on the basis of that, I I think it it is something that's worth celebrating, the notion that the next prime minister could be, you know, a woman, a person of color, or indeed both. Um, however, it's important to note before people dive to their Twitter, <laughs> to their keyboards, to, to tweet angry things, that obviously more ethnic di- diversity doesn't necessarily mean more progressive politics. Um, you know, many of the party's ethnic minority leadership hopefuls are in fact among its most hardline politicians on policy issues such as immigration, Brexit, the rights of transgender people. I mean, we know this. Um, And I think there is, of course, kind of a funny irony there that (laughs) Tugendhat probably represents the the most perhaps progressive or certainly centrist uh, of the contenders left. So, um, but but I think it's noteworthy. I I think obviously to to have, um, you know, a Prime Minister Sunak, a Prime Minister Badenoch um, representing Britain on on the international stage would, would be noteworthy. And even if you don't, agree with their politics or their policies, um, I, I think that is quite striking and, and I think says something about Britain that perhaps you don't really see in other countries. Jamie, did you watch debates? I'm a glutton for punishment. I watched both of them. Uh, so did I. And um, what was your overriding emotion when you uh, finished the hour, hour and a half on offer? It was a sort of sinking feeling of despair. I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be too down on everything because everyone is down on, on it all and... We should try and look for positives. But a number of things occurred to me about this contest. The first is what you don't see anyone really trying to do is diagnose in a really simple and clear way what the challenges for the country are. You know, here are the three or four big challenges we face in the next 10 years. Then you don't have them trying to say, look, here are the ways we're going to meet these three or four big challenges. Here's our strategy. Here's our plan. Instead, you have a kind of intellectual hodgepodge of different constituency concerns coming up uh, and going away and back and forth. And I have to say, uh, you know, with all due respect to the people hosting the debates, part of this is a media thing, I think, in terms of the way the politicians, the questions that politicians are asked, sometimes don't gear themselves to thinking long term. So the first thing that sort of struck me is, none of these people are setting out for me a kind of an actual vision, right, of what they think is wrong and what they think they could do better. The second is there is a there's a real loss, in my view, of, of the art of persuasion in politics. The idea that, that one of the principal roles of a politician is to be able to convince you of something of which you were previously unconvinced. Maybe you were neutral on it. Maybe you even disagreed. But... Very few of the politicians on display just now try to persuade, and those who do uh, don't often succeed. And I have to say, some are better than others. I think Tom Tugendhat is quite persuasive. I think Kemi Badenoch is persuasive when she gets going. I, that, that's not to say I agree with her on, on almost anything, but at least she's trying to move the dial. Someone like Liz Truss, I find, is just an asserter. She asserts points. She asserts them in an assertive way, but that doesn't persuade. It doesn't change hearts or minds. It just, it, it's just an act of um, statement rather than of advocacy. And, you know, I think about the great po- political leaders that we've had in the past and uh, here and in other countries, even, again, even ones I don't agree with. You know, Liz Truss models herself on Margaret Thatcher. Say what you like about her, 
one way or another, she brought people along with her. People, people felt loyal to her. They understood what she stood for and, she believed, and they believed her when she spoke. Tony Blair, perhaps drawing on his barrister background, was a great creator of arguments. Uh, Gordon Brown in his memoirs writes something interesting about how when you know, he wanted to introduce a tax cut, he would lay the groundwork with arguments for, for 12 or 18 months beforehand, persuading, moving the polls, moving the dials. You just don't see it. And so it's, it stops being a debate, it stops being an act of persuasion, and it starts just being a load of um, angry-sounding people talking across each other. Yeah, the quality of the rhetoric is extremely low, isn't it? I mean, there's constant appeals to trust me, but not actually saying any things that would lead us to trust them. <laughs> if I may say, I, I, think, I think it's not just rhetoric. I, I don't think you need to be able to speak like Martin Luther King to be persuasive. You know, in my line of work in court, it's often the quietest and the simplest of spoken advocates who are the ones who can silence a room and persuade others. What you need, and indeed, sometimes rhetoric can mask the fact that you don't have a good point underneath what you're trying to say. The, the real work of persuasion begins before you stand on stage in lining up your facts, lining up your logic, lining up your arguments. And too often, I think, with these politicians, it sounds like they're thinking about stuff for the first time as soon as the question is asked. I don't know if that's actually the case, but it's what it sounds like. Yeah. Gavin, Penny Morden's initial momentum seems to have stalled a bit. And she made a very odd remark on Friday about the NHS not using any of the top 180 innovations, which her social media team inexplicably amplified and then deleted. Are we past Pete Morden, do you think? I think we are. I mean, I have no idea. I, I read the accounts of the debates because it was quicker. And when I saw this top 180 innovations are not used by the NHS, I mean, what, what does she mean? Electricity or laptops? Or, or I, I have no idea what she was on about. Vaccinations, that's quite a top innovation, I would have thought. Um, I, I just thought it was nonsense, really. Um, I suspect that she, she struck me as the none of the above candidate. Most people had never heard of her. I don't think many people in the Conservative Party had heard of her. But we'd heard of some of the others. And uh, if the electorate doesn't like them, maybe she had a chance as the, as the none of the above candidate. But I don't think, I mean, it could be proved completely wrong because it is such a bizarre electorate. But I don't think she's uh, ready for prime time, really. Yasmin, Kemi Badenoch was combative and she held her own against the other candidates. She was also the most unenthusiastic about Net Zero, although she does now say she is committed to it. How does she compare to her fellow right-winger, Liz Truss? I think Badenoch, not to undermine, of course, Truss's backstory here, but I think she has a pretty compelling one. Um, she was born in South London, but she grew up in the US and Nigeria. Uh, she returned to the UK at the age of 16. And I think she's talked about how she she worked at McDonald's while to put herself through school um, in South London. Uh, she studied engineering, but she's also had stints in finance and even at The Spectator, which I don't know if that reminds us of anyone. Um, <laughs> unlike um, unlike Trust, she voted leave in the Brexit referendum. So, you know, she, she has heavy hitters like Michael Gove behind her. She also seems to be a fan of wading into the culture wars. I think she's talked a lot about the sort of war on woke, certainly more than the other candidates. Um, but of course, you know, she's less experienced than Truss. But I think despite that, what I've sort of been reading um, from uh, anonymous MPs, of course, who are talking about the contenders is that even if uh, Badenoch doesn't 
advance further or get into the final two that she's certainly one to watch. I don't want to ask you who's going to be kicked out by the time this comes out because it's a hostage of fortune. It's probably two on two can hats anyway. But I am going to ask all the panel who must be kicked out before the choice goes to the members, in your view. Which of the candidates do you think would do this country most harm? Gavin, what's your take? Uh, I'm I'm find this difficult to answer, actually. I suspect it might be Liz Truss, um, because I don't think that Liz Truss, I think she's in the in the Johnsonian tradition without the humour. Uh, I think she doesn't actually stand for anything. She doesn't have a plan. Uh, I, I agree with Jamie that one of the terrible things that's happened in the last few years has been a lack of strategy by people in power. They don't think even about the next three years, they think of tomorrow's headlines. And I think the idea of, um, you know, Liz, Liz Truss appearing in a tank and, and you know, kind of channeling the ghost of Margaret Thatcher suggests to me that she would be utterly vacuous as uh, Prime Minister. Yasmin, how about you? Yeah, I I certainly agree with the sentiment that I think a continuation candidate of the sort of Johnsonian era is is not what people are looking for. So those that are seen to be particularly close to him, um, trust being kind of the the obvious choice there. Um, I mean, I I don't know to the extent that Sunak is seen as perhaps too close to him, but but I think, yeah, probably in, in that respect, I think trust is probably the one that is least like, I mean, depending on how the members vote, I just don't really see that being the message that that people necessarily want. Jamie, who would you least like to see? I'm going to be controversial and say Penny Morden. The reason is that uh, having begun in listening with an open mind, genuinely open mind, and, and, you know, I've admired her public performances in the past, I think that she is someone who has not only no plan, but no core set of commitments. And what I think that means for the country is no grip at the top of government. I think that she would be buffeted around by forces beyond her control, which is what happens, I think, when you don't have a, a consistent plan. And so it's a shame because I, I, I liked the idea of Penny Morden, but having listened to her in the debates, it's quite clear to me that she would just be a, a hostage to events. And I think the country's entering a time of great crisis and the one thing we're going to need, I think, is a prime minister with a bit of grit. When we talk about the future, we've got to talk about the internet. And Jamie Suskind has been thinking about that for a while. He's just published The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. Jamie, we're living in a digital world where platforms are making the rules rather than governments making the rules. So far, people don't seem to have been too troubled about that. Why should they be? We're moving into a world where almost every one of our actions, our interactions and our transactions will be mediated through digital technology. And when we interact with the digital technology, we have to follow the rules that are coded into it. So on Twitter... If you try to send a tweet that is more than 280 characters, the tweet just won't send. You can't negotiate with the platform. You can't bargain with it. The rules are the rules and the code enforces them. If we're moving into a world where more and more of the things that matter to us are mediated by digital technology, think about things like algorithms, distributing things of value like mortgages or loans or insurance or housing or access to criminal justice, 
those who write the rules that are coded into these technologies increasingly write the rules by which the rest of us live. Software engineers are becoming social engineers. The challenge, the issue, is much bigger than just what's happening on Facebook or Twitter. It's about an entirely new form of social power that has arisen alongside market forces, alongside the force of the state, alongside the force of social norms. These forces that are, you know, are familiar to us from political philosophy and social theory. There's a new one now, the power of digital technology. And those who own and control the most powerful digital technologies are going to have an enormous amount of influence and power in the future. And my simple view is that power might be exercised in a way that we like sometimes, might be exercised in a way that we don't like sometimes. But we shouldn't have to rely on the wisdom or goodwill of anyone to exercise unaccountable power over our lives. That's not how we approach other people of power in society. So it shouldn't be the same for the tech companies or for the tech industry either. So I want to completely rethink our relationship with digital technology, recognizing it as the authentically political thing that it is. The digital is political nowadays. Well, we meander, don't we, between regulating the platforms or talking about regulating the platforms or bringing in codes that invite the platforms to regulate themselves and controlling what people can say and do on them, which is very, very hard. China is trying to do both effectively. Which is the right approach? Well, the issue, obviously, is that the more, you know, we don't want we don't want too much power in the hands of private corporations. So I don't think we want unfettered discretion on the part of major platforms to shape uh, deliberative discourse in our countries, what may be said, who may say it, how it may be said, and more importantly, perhaps what goes viral and what gets completely hidden. These are not matters of commerce or business strategy. These are political matters. So what do you want? You want a little bit of oversight from uh, the, the demos, the people. But then the risk with that is that if you give power to the state or the government, then you have the government or the state trundling in, messing around with people's free speech, acting on its own impulses, uh, and itself becoming a, a kind of form of unaccountable power. So what you need to do is develop a system of regulation, a little bit like what we have for broadcast regulation just now, which strikes a balance, taking a little bit of power away from private corporations, but not giving too much power to the government or to the state. Now, I think there are a number of ways we can do this when it comes to social media, and I propose some in my book. But the headline is, firstly, we should be ranking and sorting social media platforms according to their levels of social risk. There's no need to have the same kind of regulation for your local knitting chat board uh, as for Facebook, which has more members than Christianity does. Uh, secondly, the state should never be getting involved, in my view, in individual decisions about content moderation and content removal. I don't want any government agent saying to Facebook, take that down. But what this, the platform should have to show is that they have in place adequate systems to meet the requirements that are laid down by the government. So those requirements might be, you should have reasonable and proportionate systems in place to reduce the risk of foreign interference in the democratic process, or reasonable and proportionate systems in place to reduce the risk of harassment. And what you have by taking a systems-based and a risk reduction-based approach is a system that allows platforms to get it wrong once in a while, but which places some responsibility on them. And if they can show that they have met the requirements 
of having adequate systems for the protection of society and the people who use them, uh, then they should enjoy a degree of immunity from, from liability. So you shouldn't be able to sue a platform for every dumb thing that someone posts on it. it this is all quite sort of intricate and difficult, but there's been a, quite a few years of research about this stuff now. And it does seem to me that the system that I've just sketched out at least tries to balance the competing prerogatives I was talking about a moment ago. Given the reception and the quality of the online harvest bill that we're seeing possibly going through Parliament, possibly not at the moment, it's clearly very, very hard. You're a fan of what you call deliberative mini-publics to help come to these kinds of decisions. What are they? Yeah, so the idea of deliberative mini-publics is basically this. What I want to see is a society in which um, important decisions, certain important decisions about digital technology are put in the hands of the people. But there are more than one way, there's more than one way of doing the democratic art. We don't just have parliaments, we have things like referendums and the like, but there is this lost art of what's called the deliberative mini-public, which reaches back to ancient Greece, which is a form of democratic engagement that I think we could use more of. So a democratic mini-public, the closest thing we have to it is a jury. Basically a random group of people are selected and what happens is they are put in conditions which are ideal for political deliberation. The closest to home example I can think of is in, in Ireland, where they had a, they had a, a long deliberative mini-public um, considering issues around abortion and, and its legalisation and same-sex marriage. And both of those processes led to changes in the law, which now enjoy reasonably broad uh, acceptance. The point is this. Uh, I'm someone who says that digital technology should be democratized, that there are certain choices that shouldn't be left to companies alone. But I'm trying to imagine ways of democratizing technology that don't just involve leaving it to parliament or worse, uh, to referenda. This new form of the democratic art, I think at least offers some way that we might get people more involved in the governance of the technologies that in turn govern our lives. Well, it's a great book. It's an exciting vision. And The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century is published by Bloomsbury. Last week, we saw new photos from the James Webb Telescope. They captured light that has taken billions of years to reach us from faraway galaxies. It reminded me of the first detailed picture of Earth from space, the one they call the Blue Marble, which was taken in 1972. The image became a symbol of the fragility of the Earth, and it was used a lot by early green campaigners. Gavin, how did seeing these latest images of far, far away space make you feel? Uh, very small, um, quite <laughs> insignificant. Um, uh, I thought they were beautiful. And I also thought, actually, I thought there is a kind of human paradox here. When you see something like that, you do feel very small and insignificant. On the other, on the other hand, without the human, we, we meaning all of us, wouldn't be able to understand the, the greatness of all this. So there's something that really touches the soul about the idea, for example, uh, the, I have no idea how scientists know this, that the pictures you were looking at are of something which was about, you know, 1650, 1660, or around the time of Cromwell uh, uh, as, as leading our country, uh, and somewhere older. I just found that, uh, that mind-stretching, absolutely mind-stretching, still trying to com comprehend it. Yes, I mean, is it useful to be reminded how very small and very irrelevant we are in the grand scheme of things, if indeed it is a scheme? Or does it, does it lead to a kind of nihilism? 
I think it is important to be humbled by the universe, um, if for nothing else, so that it makes the problems that we're experiencing here on lowly earth perhaps seem smaller than than they actually are. Not the big things, of course, like climate change, which we discussed, but kind of those everyday issues. Um, you look at an image like that and you realize, gosh, like there's just so much out there. I mean, I think the, the biggest takeaway I had um, was was after reading my, my colleague Marina Korn had this amazing piece um, in which she made this this really important point that it, that image totally reoriented the way that we think about the universe and our place in it. She said, you know, consider the language that we often use to describe what lies beyond our atmosphere, the expanse, empty space, a void. That image completely upended that perception. So um, in that way, I think it was actually really quite nice. Jamie, were you excited by space as a boy? Are you still excited by it? Oh yeah, I, I love it and I love space movies and I love space science fiction and I love these photos. I mean I have a, I have competing reactions to it. One is one is it does make you feel oh, oh my gosh we're so insignificant. But imagine if we were the only life or the only advanced life in that vast expanse. That would seem to me to make us extra, not meaningless, but almost like a responsibility. Imagine if what's happening on this planet is the only form of life in that entire cold expanse. Now, I think that's probably unlikely, but as far as we know just now, it's the truth. And it almost places a responsibility on us as the kind of guardians of life in the universe to keep it going and to, to make it sustainable. Well, yes, it's it's odd because in the 20th century, we were fascinated, I think, by the possibility of alien life. And, you know, initially that was thought there might be things on Mars and then there turned out to be nothing on Mars, as we have now fully confirmed uh, after sending the rover over there. And all, all our exploration so far has not led to any discovery of life. Is it... it, it do you, does that change, do you think, the way we think about this the, as, as the emptiness expands almost? People have different views on this. The sheer size of the universe, and even when you combine that with the very low probability that life would emerge in a particular time or place, means that it, it is likely we are not the only life form in the universe just now. That, that, that's kind of my understanding of a conventional way of thinking about life in the universe. But... I think you're right that if things have changed from 100 years ago, in that I think probably 100 years ago, people might have imagined that by now we might have some indication from outer space that it wasn't a dark forest, that, the, that it was in fact teeming with life. And we haven't had that. And I think it, it just brings home the fact that as far as we know, this is it. This is it. And the choices and decisions that this generation makes and the generation that comes after are really important. You know, since the middle of the last century, we've had the capacity with one press of a button to destroy human and most biological life entirely. We now hold that in our hands. And looking at those photos this week, I, it just made me realize and think again how precarious it all is um, and how awesome the responsibility is on, on the shoulders of human beings. Yes, I'm thinking about photos and how powerful some of them are. I mean, some of them come to define their subjects, especially ones taken in war. It's 50 years now since the famous Vietnam napalm girl photo was taken. Is there any evidence, as some people say, that it that turned public opinion in the US against the war? 
Definitely, yeah. I mean, Nick Yutsne, Palm Girl, it was a Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph. Um, it, it's known as the, the picture that changed the war in Vietnam. Um, I believe there was a poll that was conducted, I think, in 2019, even among British audiences, um, that found that this picture topped top the list of photographs that, that had changed the world. Um, uh, in and not to plug my future employer, but I think it was also included on Time's list of 100 most influential photographs ever taken. And, and I mean, I think the reason for that is simple. When you, war especially taking place so far away can seem like such an abstract thing. Um, and perhaps people only think about it to the extent that it affects their own countries. But to see an image as, as powerful and, and in many cases with these photos as horrifying as that, it really does, I think, bring it home and, and totally change the image, particularly if it's an image counter to the one that governments and leaders would like to project, um, especially in the case of the U.S., you know, this this notion of, of the war going well when, when in fact it, it wasn't. Um, you know, I, I think of other more recent photos that have had similar impacts on um, the 2015 photo of the two-year-old Alan Kurdi, who who listeners might remember the image of him laying face down on a sandy beach in Turkey, that that image really woke people up to to the reality of the Syrian refugee crisis, um, a crisis that I think up until that point people were not really focused on in terms of like in a humanitarian way, um, but but that photo really mobilized empathy and concern. And I believe, if if I remember correctly, it, it certainly there was evidence that it spurred a lot of donations, um, perhaps however short lived, to the Red Cross. But it also prompted a lot of Google searches for things like Syria refugees, um, Ilan as as his name was misreported at the time. So um, yeah, these these images can have a profound effect, I think. And, and, that, and that's why they're so important, because sometimes I think images have an impact that words just can't. Gavin, you spent much of your career at the BBC. What images have stayed with you over the years? Uh, well, the, the, uh, the, the island currently one is one that definitely has stayed with me. And the one I remember um, was of the Catholic priest with a white handkerchief on Bloody Sunday in Derry. Uh, And he later became Bishop Daly. And at some point late in his career, I did interview him about it. And of course, it was an iconic image because this was British soldiers firing on people who were unarmed in a part of the United Kingdom. So that did have that did have a big, big effect on 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 some people. Um, And in terms of the images of the the, the first Gulf War. I remember I've also talked to people about that uh, connected with the White House and so on. And one of the reasons that the first Gulf War stopped so abruptly in February 1991 was that George Bush knew about those images uh, and was pretty appalled by them and had been told by people in the White House that it was turning into what what was quoted as a turkey shoot. And he stopped. And he, of course, stopped at the border of Iraq. So it's not just, you know, us as members of the public or us as journalists who are affected by it. Politicians get it as well, at least if they're, if they're paying attention like George H.W. Bush did. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What entertainment has given our panellists a break from the bruising world of politics? Yasmin. So I've um, been catching up on Stranger Things because I kind of stopped watching it, but it is all over my social media. So I felt compelled. So I'm rewatching that show, um, which is yeah, proving to be a great distraction, especially between jobs. I keep hearing about not stranger things, but better things, which apparently is brilliant. And I'm looking forward to watching that on BBC iPlayer. But the thing I've been reading 
this week, which is a bit kind of, I suppose, lowbrow maybe, but The Palace Papers by Tina Brown, which is intermittently a load of rubbish that you'd normally read in Tatler, but is also a terrifying expose of what Prince Andrew was allowed to get away with, not just the links with, with Epstein, but the things that he was allowed the deals he was making and the links that he was trying to forge with oppressive regimes that he was allowed to do with impunity. It has been absolutely shocking. So I recommend that if you want to be a bit less perhaps complacent about the monarchy's role in British society. Gavin, how about you? Well, my priority in the past week has been to get out of doors because I've been stuck indoors for, 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 for work. So apart from jumping in the sea, I suppose my favourite event of the past week was going to an outdoor summer party in a friend's garden, a very informal barbecue where one of the dogs that was invited uh, ran off with the meat from the barbecue. So that made us all feel <laughs> that made us all feel very contented. It made me it certainly made me laugh anyway. That sounds a lot of fun. Jamie, how about you? Oh, it's much less wholesome. Uh, I am a dedicated and loyal follower of the ITV series Love Island. Yes. You are the last person I would have expected to say that. Go on. I will. I mean, I could talk for hours about it. The, the, I mean, if you're interested in people, it's a great show. There's just, there's, there's, these are in some ways very ordinary, in some ways extraordinary people, and they do all kinds of silly and interesting things. And it's all kicking off right now, which is amazing. Sorry, I also watch it. <laughs> ah, see, I mean, I think there are lots more watchers of this program in the kind of chattering classes than people would like to admit. Not all of us are having wholesome barbecues and swimming in the Kent coast. <laughs> I'm festering inside in front of Love Island instead. Yeah, but you did you did actually watch some of the Conservative Party debates, which I wouldn't call it entirely <laughs> elevating. Is that the opposite of Love Island? Well, one followed the other. And I have to say the quality of debates did not really change much between the two TV shows. <laughs> Indeed. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Yasmin Sirhan. Thanks for having me. To Gavin Esler. Thank you very much. And to our special guest, Jamie Siskind. Thank you, Roz. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You'll get early ad-free shows, merchandise and more, including a shout-out on the podcast. And here are some now. Hello from me to Gary Field, to someone who describes himself as just K, which is very enigmatic. Perhaps it's Joseph K from Kafka, I don't know. Please get in touch if it is. And uh, also to Ewan Boyd. Many thanks from me to Richard Simpson, Mark J. Shelton's, and Martin Robson. And finally, many thanks and best wishes from me to Bill Welch, Helen Taylor, and Ali Thomas. See you next time. The Bunker was presented by Roz Taylor with Yasmin Sirhan and Gavin Esler. With audio production from me, Robin Lieber. Producers are Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronevich. Assistant producer is Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer, Jacob Jarvin. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>